I'm Lisa Smith Henderson, and I am the host of Alma Am I Racist, the podcast. And today we have a returning guest, Reverend Amber Lowe Woodfork. And now she's got a master's degree. She's working on her doctorate at Clark Atlanta University. So we promise we're going to have her back so we can call her doctor when that's completed. I know it's quite the process. She's currently the assistant pastor at the historic church, the historic West Mitchell Street CME Church. And if you haven't been, that's a very famous church. She's been active in politics as a support person and a faith outreach person. Now, one of the things that I love about Amber is her website, truthistrouble.com. On that website, you can find out everything you need to know, how to follow her on social media, how to make contact if you want to talk to her about being a speaker, and also just to find out what she's up to. So truthistrouble.com is her website. Happy to have you back again, Reverend Amber. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me back. I had so much fun last time. <laughs> well, we did have fun. and yeah. We- we made some progress and uh, congratulations on your YouTube channel. Yes, thank you. I started a YouTube channel um, by the same name as my website, Truth is Trouble. That's a um, Toni Morrison quote from one of her essays titled Peril. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to give you all some content and see where it takes me. Well, I'm, I'm delighted and I'd invite everybody to go and subscribe so they can see all the great work that you do. So, Amber, I don't even know where to start. Let's start (laughs) with last Wednesday. I'd like to know what your perception was. Were you watching it unfold in real time? Yes, I was. You know something? I try not to watch, although I'm very informed and aware of what's going on. I try to take breaks from news as much as I can because it can be very overwhelming and you know, traumatizing and triggering, right? Especially with, you know, all that we're faced with right now. Um, I don't know how I got on CNN on Wednesday. I think it was just on for some reason. I don't know. But I looked at my TV, Lisa, and I was like, what is going on? Like, what is this? You you know, it it took me a minute. It took a, a while for it to finally click what was happening, you know? Even watching it real time, although, you know, it was devastating and I was like what is going on right now this is this is violence right I still didn't realize how bad it was until days later right until the journalists um, who were there you know offered some cell phone video from different persons who were inside the Capitol seeing just how violent it was and putting in context the gallows and the noose right and what the intention was of the the insurrectionists Now, I will say this, although I didn't realize how bad it was until days later, with additional um, news footage, cell phone uh, camera footage, it was very clear to me, you know, on Wednesdays, you know, when I watched it, that it was an insurrection, right? That was clear because listening to Trump's speech and his words to his supporters about, you know, the march on the Capitol and then seeing what was, you know, taking place as Congress was attempting to, you know, certify the election. I said, oh, this is an attempt to, uh, an obvious attempt to disrupt a peaceful process, right? It's an attempt to to overthrow the government, essentially, right? That was clear to me. And it's scary. Lisa, I don't think many people are taking this as seriously as it should be taken. 
we had a real attempt to to not just, you know, destroy property and not just to disrupt congressional proceedings, but we had a real attempt to overthrow a constitutional process so that someone who has proven himself to be a fascist, racist dictator of sorts to continue his rule. And that was that was scary to me. For me, it was I'm a I'm a news junkie, so I had the TV on, and it was like watching the planes fly into the Twin Towers. Yes, yes. I, I I cannot believe I'm seeing this. And my first thought, even as a white person, is if this were Black Lives Matter, correct, they never would have made it up the steps. They never, never would, have, would have made it up the scaffolding. There would be dead bodies everywhere, and that was my first thought. Yeah, same. I mean, I had I had a similar thought. I'm like, first of all, where's the National Guard? Where's local police? I mean, where's law enforcement, you know, as a as as a whole. Right. And it became clear to me as I was asking that question, you know, and watching everything unfold. I said, oh, obviously, you know, this was an inside job. Obviously, the president knew what was what was going to take place as these votes were being counted by Congress right to certify the election. He knew what was going to happen. So it became very clear that he may have ordered the National Guard to to stand back, (laughs) you know, and stand by. by, Yeah, I can stand by. Right. It really heightened my distrust for law enforcement, although I felt horrible that, you know, police officer was unfortunately murdered. Right. Let's call it what call it what it is. He was murdered by these insurrectionists. And although others were injured, right, other officers were injured, and I feel horrible about that, right? At the same time, I'm like, where, where is, you know, a larger police presence? Because again, as I mentioned last time, I was very active, and I'm still very active, right, in the Black Lives Matter movement and protests. And I mean, you couldn't turn a corner, Lisa, at any peaceful demonstration, right? Keyword peaceful demonstration without seeing police, right? And the National Guard and tear gas and rubber bullets and just the intimidation of it all, right? These people were allowed to almost overthrow the government. And I'm just like, this is why Black folks, Black and Brown people don't trust police. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I do think it is being revealed and I think more will be revealed in time that it was an inside job. And I th- at first I thought, oh, I've been watching too many crime shows. You know, it's an inside job. And then as it came out, I was like, well, hell yeah, it was. Christian Smith, who's the pastor of the faith community, was on with me earlier this week. And he made a great analogy. He was talking about basically white privilege and how white people will say, well, I don't have that problem with the police. And the analogy he made was he has a very strong stomach and his wife has kind of a weaker stomach so they can eat the same thing. And he said, it would be like me saying to her, well, I'm fine. I don't believe you. And I think this is what white people have got to get through our heads is our experience with the police is going to be different. And we have to listen to our black brothers and sisters who have had decades and centuries of abuse by police, which I learned from you were started for slave patrol. So that there is this deep seated reason 
not perhaps, but it is a reason that continues to this day. Yeah, it's the reason why, you know, we have mistrust for police. It's also this, the insurrection, right? The attempted coup on Wednesday and what I saw as far as the Jesus save signs that were being, you know, held up as, as banners and mottos. That's another reason why many black and brown folks and others don't really see it for, for Christianity right now. I'm a Christian minister and that alarmed me. I'm like, what, what is the purpose of these Jesus save signs? And then I said, okay, it is because <laughs> first of all, white supremacy is your religion. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. That is their they religion. worship the white Jesus. They worship, you know, and so and and they worship Donald Trump as God, right? My first question was, well, who is this Jesus and what is he saving them from? What 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 is being who or what is being saved? Being saved from what? Oh, being saved by all these black and brown people who have come into power in this country. We, we should put it in context. The the insurrection happened the day after the election in Georgia, the runoff where Senator, where Raphael Warnock, Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff were elected to, to the U.S. Senate. And that is because black and brown people turned out in record numbers. And even with the presidential election, black and brown people turned out in record numbers. And so all this rhetoric from Donald Trump and from his followers about the election being, you know, illegitimate and throwing out votes, it is a direct attempt to silence and to suppress black and brown votes. And so when I see a Jesus save sign, that lets me that lets me know that okay, you want your Jesus, right? Your imperial whitewashed Jesus to save this country from the from how it is being overrun in your mind by black and brown people who are coming into power and who are really saving democracy, right? <laughs> we out here trying to save democracy and the greatest threat to democracy is white supremacy really i agree i agree and what what is very frustrating for me is trump supporters saying i'm not a white supremacist i support trump let's see you support him you support his viewpoints he doesn't make any bones about it he's not like a trump is not a hidden white supremacist he is an out there white supremacist that's right All right. right. So you brought up a great thing. And this is where I want to get to the heart of it, because you are a a minister. You are a Christian. Amber, if I hear one more faith leader say, I call for unity, I'm going to scream. I am going to scream. I did. I I already did. I I had to have a talk with a faith leader friend of mine and say, "I, I, I had to get up. I couldn't listen to it. It's too soon. You know, we cannot be talking all la kumbaya, everything's going to be happy dappy when we just watched in stark reality, white supremacy in action and 75 million people voted for Donald Trump. That means 75 million people on some level buy in. So from a Christian perspective, so many questions swirling, but I would like to know what your thoughts are and whether you think unity is a bit premature. Yeah, my question every time someone says, you know, let's start to heal or, you know, we need healing and unity right now. First of all, who's doing the healing and what do you mean by healing? 
what does that mean? Does healing mean I just say I forgive you and then we move on and there are no repercussions for, you know, your actions? Does justice come along with healing, right? What does healing mean? You saw my post yesterday, you commented, um, I shared the video, the interview between Gail King and the young woman who accused the, the Black child, a 14-year-old Black kid of stealing her phone. And so in the interview with Gail, you know, she tells her to hush and that, you know, it, it's time for healing. It, let, let, she said, let this year be the year of healing. Ma'am, you cannot tell someone, you, you can't hurt someone and attack them and racially profile them. And where you're being held accountable, you don't want to be held accountable, right? You want to skip past that. You want to skip past the hard part, being called out on your bias, on your racism, right? You want to skip past all that and say, let's heal. No, I'm going to need for you to deal with who and what you are. So for this country to heal, we need to deal with on a systematic level in all of our institutions, how this country, right, has wronged people who look like me. And not just, you know, you call me the N-word and hurting my feelings. No, how have you systematized your hate towards black and brown and indigenous folks, right? We gotta have to deal with that. That means in our healthcare system, in our education system, in our policing system, in so many different facets of our society, right? In our financial sectors, how has this country wronged people systemically and continue to make them feel less than human, right? Continue to usurp their rights. And so we can't have healing without some real conversation, without some self-reflection, and then without some action behind it. I'm going to need for all these institutions to say, okay, if we have, not if, since we have wronged you, know, you in this institution, this is how we're going to make it right. First of all, and before we even get to how to make it right, let me ask you all how best to make it right. I was talking to a friend um, or a mentor, mother of a day, Lisa, about how there's been no real investment, right, from the federal government into, into HBCUs and really into Black higher, higher education for, for Black people, right? It has taken some fortitude and a push, you know, from our own individual and collective selves to pursue higher education and no real investment, you know, on a large scale from the government. And so my thing is one way to apologize for all the wrongs that have been, you know, wielded towards us, right? Is to invest in higher education. Ah, okay, cool. <laughs> free, you that's know. concrete. Uh, seriously, that's a form of reparations. One way to right the wrongs of how we've been over-policed and criminalized in the, in the criminal justice system, right? Is to, is to take a look at, you know, the policies that have led to mass incarceration, right? And one of them is these drug offenses, like, you know, silly marijuana and what have you. And now that in many states it's legalized, okay, free those people, right? Free them from prisons. If it's legal now <laughs> and it's a low level offense, right? Do the work of freeing these people from these prisons when they've served their time, number one. And number two, you're starting to make a profit off of what, of what put them in prison in the first place. And after you free them, invest in their education, invest in their re-entry into society. There are many different ways, right? If you want to talk about healing and just saying, oh, let's come together and let's unify is not it. Paying lip service to it is, is not it. You're going to have to, again, deal with what you have done, the brutality of it all, right? Well, I, I and, and couldn't, couldn't that woman 
who accused the young man of stealing her phone, couldn't it, her unity have started with saying, I am so sorry. I was yes. wrong. I was I wrong. I was wrong. Because here's what I, I'm finding extremely frustrating over the last week or so, and actually long before that, is this idea that the oppressed need to be working on something to make it better for the oppressor. That's right. That's a good point. That is you know, a good point. I mean, that it's like, well, we all have to do the work. No, we don't have to do the work. White people have to do the work. We need to look at our part and say, here's what we have done wrong. The only thing I see that Black people need to do is receive the amends. That's a very point. And if possible, to forgive. Because a lot of these same people that are like, la, 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 unity, when somebody commits a murder, it's like, hang them, they should die, put them to death. There's no talk of unity or forgiveness or whatever for murderers. But when it's something done to black folks, you know, we're quick to say, okay, let's unify. No, let, let us sit in the uncomfortable tension of what this moment has presented to us, right? Let's sit in that. I mean, there, Lisa, I don't even think we've begun to even process the half, right, of how brutal slavery was. I mean, one of my friends who's a PhD in sociology, he teaches at UT Austin um, out in Texas, and um, he did a whole economic study on what it meant to really buy and sell Black people as slaves. I mean, you're taking out insurance policies on Black bodies, the whole financial side to enslavement. We haven't even cracked the surface yet of how much, of number one, how much was profited off of Black bodies, number one. And then number two, what is owed then to Black folks, the corporations, the insurance companies, the banks that are swimming in money to this day because of that institution. So again, like we want to talk about healing, let's sit in that. Let's sit in the fact that you all made a whole, not you, know, not you right, but the corporations and what happened. Well, yeah, I mean, but yeah. I've benefited. Exactly. I would like to think I haven't actively been part of it, but I have certainly benefited. Exactly, from the legacy of it, the legacy of it, exactly. And so again, healing, healing means, okay, let us talk about how brutal we have been time and time again to folks, you know, that we sought to oppress and how we have not led up since slavery. It keeps re-emerging and reinventing itself decade after decade after decade in different ways, right? So you went from chattel slavery to, to Jim Crow ethics of the South to redlining in, in, in the North and unjust you know practices in the financial sector right in the housing sector you went from that to you know to mass incarceration and the brutality that comes along with that to voter suppression that really is nothing new you know it's a it's an old thing that keeps re-emerging I mean all these different ways that collectively that this country has sought to demean so again, we, we can't talk healing until we deal with all of that. And that's going to take time. You know, it's not an overnight process. It's not something that, you know, that, that you can rush just to get it over with. And it may hurt. It will hurt. It, it'll be embarrassing for many. I think it, you made a great point is that we have to sit with the anxiety and the uncomfortability of this moment. Yes. Sit in the tension 
that is how is it that these white people can take over the U.S. Capitol without shots fired from the military, right? And from, now again, you know, there were three people killed, you know, who weren't officers. It would have been a bloodbath. Oh, had it absolutely. Been some Latinos, some Black folks, some Middle Easterners. It would have been a complete bloodbath. We can live and tell the story. We can be arrested and ask for a vegan diet, right? <laughs> Like the guy wearing the horns in the pictures, you know, oh. he asked for a vegan diet while he's incarcerated right now with awaiting, I guess, his trial date. And Black folks would not have even lived to ask for a specific diet, right? I mean, it's, oh God. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. And what, here's what I'm wondering, too. And I was thinking about it in terms of my own personal work. I was sexually abused as a child from 10 to 14 by my mother, I might add, Mm. not a man. Um, And I wanted to forgive my mother, but I couldn't do that without processing through all of the pain and the anger and the hurt and what I had lost until I got to a point where I could say, I forgive you. A week before she took her own life, she called me and said, can we have a relationship? And I said, no, we can't. And she said, how about on the next plane? My mother was in her insanity, very spiritual and very smart. And I said, absolutely on the next plane, but not here. So I was clear. I had forgiven her. I didn't hold any ill will towards her. I had come to grips with it but I was very clear with a boundary. So what this seems to me is when people call for unity, it's like saying, forgive your abuser, forgive your abuser, just skip past the the anger because that to me seems to be the missing piece. And in our last podcast, I apologize to you for slavery. And I think that would be a great place to start, just a teeny start for white people to say, I'm sorry, that was wrong. Yeah, so acknowledge it. What I hear a lot, Lisa, from white folks that I know, that I grew up with, went to school with, right, and even now in my adult life, the deflection, the classic deflection is, well, every society owns slaves. First of all, Every society did not own slaves for the intention to own them, you know, in perpetuity. I mean, there, there was no promise or hope that you, that, that you could work your way out of enslavement. Every society did not hold bodies, you know, for 400 years. Every society did not force Black people, you know, male and female to, to breed like cattle. Every society did not strip away people from their homeland, take them somewhere else, take away their religion, their language, right, their customs, and then any inkling that you may ha- that, that you may be holding on to your culture and customs, you get the hell be out of you, right? Every society did not actively seek after the people were emancipated or freed themselves, didn't seek to find new ways to keep on oppressing them. One, for me, one, the, the first step is to, number one, acknowledge the severity of it. 
number one, acknowledge that it happened, the severity of it, and then, you know, yes, apologize, right? And then the best apology comes in, okay, how can I use my power as a white person? I may be poor, but I'm still white, which means that I still feel some type of power over you because of my whiteness. And I still benefit from my whiteness, right? So how can I put my privilege on the line, put myself on the line then to advocate for your healing, for your restoration, right? And for my own too, you know, as a white person, because, because I'm clear that the damage that was done to Black folks during enslavement was also done to white people. I mean, damage was done to you all as well, because again, right. to participate- in, Exactly. Yeah. To the participate- experienced- detriment that they yes. realized from their own sin. For sure. To again, just the brutality of it and, and to and to buy into that and to watch it happen and to participate in it, right? That takes a level of depravity. So again, the damage that was done to us was also done in, in many regards to white people. So I mean, healing has to happen, not just for black folks, you know, our own mental and spiritual healing, but for white folks too. So the best way, one of the ways to apologize, number one, acknowledge that it happened and the severity of it. Two, after you do that, apologize. And then three, use your privilege, you know, to advocate for me and to advocate for my full restoration, you know, back into, into society, right? Whatever that looks like, whether it looks like reparations, right? You know, financially, whether it looks like, you know, investment into our own black institutions in, in our own communities, if it looks like restoring the right to vote to felons, you know, there are many different things. If it, if it looks like fighting for environmental justice and black zip codes, whatever it looks like, however it shows up, use your privilege to, to fight because we're doing it. Black folks are doing it, like you say, every single day to make this democracy better. What we need is white folks, <laughs> you know, working alongside us to ensure the, the same. Reverend Amber Lowe Woodfork, you always speak in truth to me. I love it. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation next week, and we'll be talking about white privilege and some of the nuances of it in the education system, not, maybe not even so nuanced, and also in the uh, criminal justice system and regarding drug treatment. So we'll be talking about all that and more next week with Reverend Amber Lowe Woodfork. Check out her website. It's called truthistrouble.com, and you can sign up to subscribe to her YouTube channel. I'm Lisa Smith Henderson. I'm the host of the podcast, Alma, Am I Racist? If you want to find out who Alma was... She was really an angel on earth. You can go to my website, almaamiracist.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week for Alma Am I Racist? <laughs>